We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we record this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg peoples. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land, and that not all settlers were brought here by choice. We believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation, compassion, and respect. This is the Intersection Hub podcast, where we have candid conversations for social good. My name is Kimberly McKenzie. And my name is Paul Nazareth. We believe in the power of community and that together we can continuously learn, support, challenge, and improve ourselves, our organizations, and our sector. Join us in the Hub. We look forward to getting to know you. Are you an anti-oppressive communicator? What does anti-oppressive communication even mean? How do we move beyond the supremacy of the written word and use oral storytelling to engage communities and shine a light on critically important issues to advance the rights of women and other marginalized people in Canada and around the world? Well, this week we welcome Andrea Gunraj to the Hub, and these are just some of the topics we touch on in our conversation. Andrea is Vice President of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. She has 20 years of experience in community-based programming and communications and has a passion for innovative public education and nonprofit leadership for social change. She has worked with several organizations in the areas of equity, inclusion, systemic anti-racism, anti-oppression practice, human rights policy and practice, gender-based violence prevention and intervention, housing and homelessness, and so much more. I loved getting to know Andrea better during this conversation. I think you might enjoy it as well. Please join me in welcoming Andrea to the Hub. Andrea, I'm so glad that you could join us today. Thank you for making time. Thank you for having me. What inspired you to work in the charitable sector? I would love to know your journey to where you are. Um, Well, thanks for having me first off. And um, in terms of my journey in the charitable sector, it was maybe a bit of an accident in a sense, but of course, I don't believe there's any accidents. Um, When I was younger, I witnessed gender-based violence in my family. And I think that that helped me understand why it's important that we stop this violence. I knew it was widespread. I didn't know the facts. I didn't know that one in two women experience some form of sexual or physical violence in a lifetime. And of course, um, the rates are even higher for trans, two-spirit, and non-binary people from um, all the studies that we've seen. Um, I didn't know those things, but I knew how common it was. I knew it was widespread. I had been victimized in my own life in terms of sexual harassment and um it's just been something that has always been on the horizon and always felt really unacceptable to me. And I first got into this work by volunteering at an organization named Metrac Action on Violence. And quickly thereafter, I uh, got a job. They were so kind to me um, to allow me to even be involved in my, my new green self. And this was when I was in my teenage years that I was able to do this, which was really an awesome opportunity from this wonderful organization that's still here in Toronto, um, where I am, um, Dish With One Spoon territory, of course. And I I really felt that 
that was the first step. And uh, I had a lot of people who believed in me right away, even though they had very little reason to believe in me. They, they um, saw um, something there that needed to be developed. They put their time and their energy into it. And I would say, by and large, it was racialized women leaders who um, gave me opportunities that I got nowhere else. Um, people didn't necessarily um, have to believe in me, but they did. They mentored me. Um, it really showed how important racialized women are, period, to our communities and to um, addressing issues, social justice issues, and how important they are and how um, seamlessly they dedicate themselves to raising up young people like I was back then. Um, and so since then, I was able to work in other organizations, awesome, awesome organizations, awesome colleagues, again, more racialized women. I worked under many racialized bosses. And honestly, I don't I can't imagine anything else. They're the ones who taught me everything and gave me every opportunity. And here I am working at the Canadian Women's Foundation with folks like Paulette Senior, our president and CEO, whom I just have the, the biggest respect for. And certainly all the colleagues that I have um, at the foundation, they're awesome people. It's, it's really a great opportunity. And I say all that with the understanding that there's still so much work that we can do, so much ways um, that we can improve. So um, I'm really excited about what the future holds. Wow. Okay. There was a lot there. First of all, I'm <laughs> sorry about the trauma that you lived through. I'm sorry that that happened to you. And, uh, and it sounds like, you know, we have a lot of issues in our sector around women lifting other women, women treating each other well, um, white women like me stepping aside and being a gatekeeper for racialized women, uh, lifting women up. Um, do you remember a moment or something that that was pivotal pivotal for you in your career and what people like me listening to this might have learned from that? Yes, I do actually. It's so interesting that you say there was lots of things that maybe happened in my early days in this sector that um, might have encouraged me or discouraged me from the path. And the thing that both discouraged and encouraged me, I uh, was working with a wonderful woman who um, had a lot of skills in working with local leaders. And she had a project where she was training local leaders in the city of Toronto to learn about women's safety and just the issue of gender-based violence mm -hmm. um, and what that means in public safety in urban safety, planning, design, that kind of area. Um, so I was supporting her again, early in my career, I was in more of like a coordinator role at that time. And I uh, remember that she was looking for somebody to move up into a higher role to um, either replace her, I can't remember, it was replacing her because she was moving on to other things or it was uh, just to do more. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember telling her that I, I was interested and willing to do it. And mind you, I was 19 at the time. I didn't have that much experience, but I did say, you know, I, I've seen you in action. I feel I can do it. And nothing happened after that. And um, I, I can't even remember if someone else was hired or not, but um, somebody else came into the role and took over that project. And she was a racialized uh, leader that I look up to even today. We're, we're good friends now. And 
Um, she gave me so many opportunities in my career. And I remember speaking with her and saying, well, I know that this role was there and can I do it? Um, I spoke to the other person before and she was like, in all honesty, that other person did tell me that you were interested. She said that you were not the right person for the role. She felt that you didn't have uh, the to do it. And that woman who had said that was a white woman in the charitable sector, been involved in the charitable sector for a while. And the person who was telling me this was just giving me honest um, feedback about what she had. She was a racialized woman leader in the charitable sector. And she said, listen, I know that person told me that. I took it with a grain of salt. I didn't believe it for a second. I thought she should have given you a chance. I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to mentor you to make sure that you can do it. I bet you can, you can slay. And I did. And I did slay. Um, and she gave me a chance where somebody else didn't really know me very well, felt I didn't have the chops to do that role in a very public way, train local leaders on women's safety issues, on gender-based violence in public spaces. And uh, this racialized woman leader did believe in me. She didn't know me that well, but she knew enough to know that she could mentor me. And she took the time and she put the energy into it. And now I look up to her as a person that's one of my mentors, even to this day. And that was like 20 years ago. Wow. Um, so all that to say, uh, you know, when you think somebody's not a good fit for something, <laughs> examine yourself a little bit. You might be wrong. You might have the wrong assessment. There might be biases playing out. I'm not saying necessarily that she had the wrong assessment. This person who told uh, my my boss at the time that I wasn't the right fit for the role, but I always question that idea of fit. Yeah. I never use that word nowadays. I think it leads to too much trouble. It leads to bias, conscious and unconscious. Um, and I don't really believe in unconscious bias. Anyway, I think it's all conscious. It's just whether or not you're going to do something about it. So that's my story. That's um, something that was both discouraging and encouraging. And I took it along with me. Thank you for sharing that. You know, you do raise such an important, important issue around bias and whether or not we're willing to invest in uh, people with diverse backgrounds. And, uh, and it's not always just skin color. It's always also their backgrounds and where they come from and all sorts of differences. Uh, and we know that we, we, those, those people, usually white people in powerful positions really do need some education around what are our biases and does everybody else in this organization look like me? And certainly, um, there's been a lot of learning in that regard in the community. We're talking about it now. We don't all know what to do about it. Um, and, and it's just an evolution of thinking that uh, we need to continue to do and, and research and learn about, which is why I think your podcast is so great because certainly your podcast has done that for me and helped me think about issues and things that I hadn't thought of before. But one, one of the reasons I really wanted to sit down and chat with you here is because you were just on the podcasters of talking about podcasting. We'll see if that little experiment works, but um, you said something there that I thought was uh, that I wanted to dig deeper into. And you talked about podcasting being a platform that organizations can use. Um, I believe in oral communication and your point around the decolonization of philanthropy and looking at different forms of communication to engage different um, people uh, was very interesting. Do you feel like chatting about that a little bit? 
Yeah, that's a great topic. <laughs> All right. So how are you how are you approaching podcasting as a platform at the Canadian Women's Foundation? And how do you think that's moving us in new directions? Um, I think that where this kind of track started in terms of the way that I'm looking at it uh, was with the circle uh, on philanthropy and Aboriginal peoples in Canada. Um, this is an organization really challenging us to think about ways that we look at um, philanthropy and giving and the idea that giving is going to save us and challenging some of those um, assumptions around that, the, the colonialism that can be inherited in that and the power dynamics inherent in that. And I've had the privilege of participating in trainings by the circle and um, they have this partners in reciprocity training. And one of the things early on that they helped us to think about is some of the ways we can decolonize the way that we work in the sector. Mm -hmm. And they spoke to the idea of the supremacy of the written word and how that tends to be a, a thing that happens actually in all sectors, but certainly this idea of um, overvaluing the written word, undervaluing storytelling, undervaluing, undervaluing oral storytelling in particular, and uh, the traditions and communities that use oral storytelling. Certainly, they're speaking with respect to Indigenous communities uh, on, this, on this land, Turtle Island land, but also um, I was very cognizant of the fact that actually it's a global thing, yeah. oral storytelling and using um, oral communications over generations and uh, across communities is something very powerful. And when we overemphasize the written word, we lose the power of that and we put down the folks who are using this as, as part of their ways of communicating. I always think about what it means to be an anti-oppressive communicator and what it means to decolonize the ways that I, I look at this, this tool. It should be a tool. It shouldn't be something that... Um, kind of ruins us or rules us in a way that doesn't serve us. So I've been thinking about that in terms of my obsession and overvaluing of the written word. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I was really excited that my colleagues actually were the ones who came up with the idea of a podcast all right now with the Canadian Women's Foundation. And I just thought it was a really great way for me personally to train myself out of that um, over-reliance on the written word. Um, and I think that what it has helped us do, actually, it's really interesting because we speak to the media all the time on gender justice issues. All the time we're being interviewed uh, by reporters doing great stories. But one of the things that happens because of the media framework and the fact that media is so often uh, a form of advertising, they can only touch on issues and they must move on. Um, and that's just the way that this kind of soundbite framework has been. The problem with that is that you can't actually speak to the analysis. You can't speak to the data. You can't really look at even things like intersectionality. You can barely touch on how different people experience things differently, depending on the different factors of their identities. Things like gender-based violence, for instance, I spoke to that. That is a wide wide variety of experiences that are different for different people. And we talk about it in this way, we miss out how a woman with disabilities, for instance, might experience it, how a young person might experience it and so on. So I like the podcast because it allows us to get into some of this deeper storytelling in an oral format um, that allows us to kind of do both, get deeper into the things that we want to, that we miss out on. 
it's, it, you know, the idea of being an anti-oppressive communicator. I have never heard that phrase before. Um, can you help me understand what an oppressive communicator might look like? Is that a silly question? It's just, it's easy to let that one go by, but it's like, heaven forbid, I don't want to be a, an oppressive communicator. So what, what does being anti-oppressive look like? Well, um, I actually made up that term, anti-oppressive communicator. So please don't feel bad that you don't know it. Okay. It's up. <laughs> but the term anti-oppressive. Yeah, that's right. I coined it. Yeah, I <laughs> um, no, actually, I didn't. <laughs> the anti-oppression is not um, a a made-up term. It's a very true term. Um, and a lot of people have talked about, lots of smart people have talked about what it means to be anti-oppressive in their practice, whatever their practice might look like. It can mean lots of things, but for me, it means challenging even the forms, the mainstream forms of communication. Um, and in communication, I'm meaning marketing, I'm meaning PR, uh, public relations, I'm meaning things like digital storytelling, digital media, um, all the different tools that we use in the nonprofit sector to communicate our mandate and communicate the ways that people can get into it. So part of an anti-oppressive framework applied to that communications really means looking at things like uh, of course, the language that we use, making sure that we're not oppressive in that, that we're not reproducing uh, power dynamics like racism, like sexism, like ableism, all the isms that play out. But I think it's also deeper than that. It's beyond language. It's also looking at format. It's looking at how sometimes spin is used um, to speak to an issue. Is, is, is that what we're doing here, spinning? No. It's also looking at critiquing the ways that perhaps we can have a savior complex. Um, lots of people are talking about this in lots of different ways. I think that communications in the nonprofit sphere can kind of unwittingly perpetuate that savior complex. Um, and that means that you perpetuate colonialism and racism and all those negative things. We see community-centric fundraising speaking to this, that movement speaking to this and really challenging us and then seeing the backlash that can come from that because it kind of rocks us. It's a good rocking. Mm -hmm. I think about those exact same lessons that the community-centric fundraising folks are talking about, but applying it to communications because the two are so interrelated. Yeah. So I, I think it's really important for us to um, explore what that means. It's an extrapolation many of times because not too many people are speaking about this, but I think that there are some key people who are doing some great things I think about Roxane Gay, for instance, she's somebody I always look up to in terms of how you do anti-oppressive communications. A lot of feminists are really leading the way here. Um, and I do feel like it's just an ongoing process of us just questioning everything and looking at alternatives, looking at how other people do it really well. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a, a little story I saw. Um, I was working with a partnership and I went to Ghana which is in West Africa and uh, a Ghanaian village in uh, the more of the northern part of the country. Um, they were celebrating a girls program that they were launching and lots of girls came to the, the community space that they were doing the celebration. Lots of uh, queen mothers and community leaders were there and it was just hundreds of people in the end. And the boys got together and did plays and did performances for the girls to um, celebrate with them. Uh, the girls did a bunch of presentations and performances. It was a good five-hour affair. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, now this is communications. Mm -hmm. We might put out a press release, 
you know, at the Canadian Women's Foundation, when we launch a program, we might put out a press release. What does it mean to look at what other communities are doing mm -hmm. and uh, pulling people together in person, in relationship, and being able to celebrate a new program? I liked that. And I took that lesson into what I'm doing. I see that as part of anti-oppressive communications. I have an experience like that. Something that blew my mind um, years ago, I had the opportunity to travel with a charity in Southeast Nepal. So way beyond the, um, we went through the mountains to the plains of Nepal. There are flatlands in Nepal, right near India, and to one of the lowest caste villages there. And they didn't have books. They, the way they communicated was through stories and they, there was a group of people who would put, they would choose a topic and they would build a play and they would act out a play in the middle of this village. And the play that I saw was about how that in that community, dowries are still a thing. Child marriage was still a thing. And so they, these strong people trying to change a culture would act out a play in the middle of the village around how marrying young brides wasn't a great thing and dowries are not, no longer a good thing. And um, other issues is how to vote and why to vote. And these people didn't even realize they could participate in electing their officials. And so I love that you mentioned that because I haven't thought about that for such a long time. And I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I speak while I think and that's why sometimes it takes me a little while to get to my point, but it's always much clearer. You too, like it's like, you know, go around and around. But um, so I love, I love that. And in terms of the decolonization of our sector and the, and based on what you said in the podcast around um, the importance of auditory communication and the importance of, stretching our common practices. I'm not gonna say our best practices, but our common practices. I think about it with respect to how we govern our organizations and this old white guy governance approach of Robert's rules of order as a way to communicate. And I just would love to see or hear of organizations who are bringing in different decision-making models for organizations and different governance models. I, I'm putting you on the spot because this is just where the conversation went, but have you seen any examples of how that's happening? Um, you know, I have, and I feel that I've seen so much innovation in terms of this stuff in, in the gender justice sector, in the feminist sector, um, all over Canada. There are small grassroots organizations um, led by women and trans two-spirit and non-binary people who are doing things differently. They're doing governance differently than the common practice. I like that term uh, better than best practice because what's best? Um, and I really love uh, seeing what they do on a grassroots level in terms of letting folks with the first voices and people who have experience and who are survivors of the thing they're trying to address leading the way. That's a small example of, of what I've seen um, folks do. And because they are smaller organizations or maybe just don't have that much access to money and power, their, their best practices do not get taken up. Um, and also, you know, as you said, it's, it is a kind of a colonial mainstream white dominated uh, format in the charity sector. Even the idea of charity is, 
it needs to be questioned and needs to be looked at in terms of how it's just reproducing the same old model, the same power relationships. I think we look to them. I think that's where we have to start. And then we can start looking, of course, at the same time at other countries, other jurisdictions, like the one you mentioned in Nepal, like the one that um, I had the privilege of witnessing in Ghana, and um, just putting that into the ways that we do our models and the ways that we do uh, charity work, and maybe even not doing charity work, but seeing it as change work in community. I think that's the way to go, honestly. And I love your example because it's it's showing how that community is changing itself. It's not asking or telling anybody to swoop in and try to make a change that never works, that has been proven not to work. But when leaders, when particularly women rise within a community and say, hey, there's an issue here. How can we storytell? How can we um, open the voices for maybe young people to speak, for the people who are experiencing this issue to speak, to tell their stories, to do acting, to do music? and um, kind of create culture change that way. That's what we need to encourage. So that often means when I think about philanthropy, that means making the relationships, having the relationships, making sure that they're healthy relationships, giving the money and saying, bye, do your best. I would love to hear about it in a future point. And that's what Decolonizing Wealth, that book uh, really speaks to. And it's, it's a good one in terms of instruction for uh, funders like the Canadian Women's Foundation and other organizations that give money and so sometimes don't allow the best things to happen with that money. Mm-hmm. There's so much, there's so much there. I, I have one small other story about that village that I think you would really like. One of the problems in that village is that the husbands were not going all the way to Kathmandu. It's a 12 hour bus ride to Kathmandu to go to work. Um, so they were staying at home and, uh, abusing their wives. So the wives just started to take a little bit of their rice and stockpile their rice away. And then they went to the market and sold the rice that they took out of their own family stores so that they could get their husbands on a bus to send their husbands off to Kathmandu to work so that they could lift up the community. I mean, these were some incredibly strong and powerful women that can serve as an inspiration for us all if we could see beyond our judgment of what poverty looks like. Does that make any sense? I like that story. I think there's lots that we can actually take from here. You know, we have one of the highest rates of gender-based violence in the world in Canada. And you're making me think of all the ways that women in all communities, I'm thinking about rural communities, remote communities where work is very far away um, and where men need to be supported in many ways to not use violence in their relationships and to respect women. Um, There's lots of stories like that that I think are 100% applicable to the Canadian context. But again, in a white charity framework, we never pay attention to those things. We don't learn the lessons from those things. We don't see the brilliance in it. And we don't fund the folks who are doing this stuff every day in community. We don't fund them the way that we should. Instead, we fund policing. We fund the legal system. We fund prisons. And we think that that addresses it, but that addresses nothing in terms of gender-based violence. It doesn't even scratch the surface, nor is it appropriate, because it only does stuff after something happens, if at all. And it doesn't prevent it. And it certainly doesn't change the culture. Sure. It it treats the symptom. It doesn't get to the root of the problem. That's right. Sometimes making things worse. Yeah. 
And so there are there are more and more stories coming up, especially on this podcast, actually. <laughs> but there are more and more stories coming up of organizations that are working in community for collective impact, where they're mm -hmm. trying to shift that power dynamic. And one of the things I would love to see, you know, maybe one of the challenges is that we live in this poverty mindset in the charitable sector where it's hand to mouth, we're on a hamster wheel, and we're not creating space to A, breathe, and B, have conversations around, we've been doing it this way for a long time. Does it still make sense for us? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I would love to see a lot of organizations do right now in this moment, because the sector has, and Canadian Women's Foundation is doing a fabulous job modeling this, I think, from what I can see. Um, we have this moment after this triple pandemic, after living through this collective trauma of a social reckoning, uh, the COVID thing, an economic crisis, the world is on fire. We have this moment to say, hey, wait, our systems across the sector are not working for us anymore. We absolutely must create a shift. And anyway, that's where I went with that. All that whole conversation is that I think organizations just aren't taking the space to stop and breathe and ask themselves those questions. The what if, why are we doing this, you know? Um, Kimberly, you know, I, I don't want to put the responsibility on organizations alone. I do feel that there's good reason why that cycle, that hamster wheel of, of want and need is, is there. They don't get funding. They don't get the support that they need. They get a slice, particularly the grassroots ones yeah. based um, on, you know, issues of social justice they get the, the least amount of support. So I, I don't want to um, say that that's not valid for them to feel like, oh gosh, we just don't have time. We're just running, running, running. We're burnt out. We don't have the right support. But I also agree with you. I think there's a challenge there um, that we have to stop with that. Um, we have to call out that reality. We have to say, we don't want to be fighting and flighting um, because of the way that our funding models work. We need to change these funding models. We need to have a different model entirely. We need more taxpayer dollars towards social justice work. Um, and honestly, I do think that this stuff is happening. It's just that we're not seeing it. We're, these are you know, groups that are equity seeking are talking about these things and doing great stuff. And I do think that funders like the Canadian Women's Foundation and other funders, we have a role to play and we haven't played the role that we need to play to raise these voices up and this innovation up and say, hey, you know, we're struggling with an issue like climate change. Look at what these communities are doing. We'll look at what they've been advocating for. Why aren't we listening to them? And use our power in the sector to raise those voices and, and be that change voice. We're not doing it the way that we should. So there's a lot that I can take from this conversation in terms of, you know, where we need to go um, and just critiquing the way that we work here. You know, that's a really important and fair point. And I can't, I, I've worked, done a lot of work with small organizations who think there's one particular funder in this province where it's so hard to get capacity funding and then the capacity funding. I mean, it just happens over and over and over again. And they may have shifted how they're giving their grants now, but um, I've been caught in that cycle where the, the, the 
the expectations of the funder are so great and so high that all the organization ends up doing is try to meet the needs of the of the funder and never actually getting the lift that the grant was intended to provide in the first place. Yeah. And I've heard the Ford Foundation in the States has completely restructured their philanthropy and, and, and that was, I think, in response to George Floyd, right? So it, it's heartening to hear that it's happening in some places and yeah, we need a lot more of that. Yeah, for sure. So with respect um, to your podcast, I noticed it's like a weekly thing which is really every two weeks, every two weeks. Every I wish it were weekly. Oh, you know, I love doing this podcast. I love these conversations. It's a, just one of my greatest joys. And I learned so much from the people who come. Um, but we shifted to every two weeks as well, because it's, a, it's a lot, right? Yeah, it is. Um, and you know, I have, I cannot take any credit for this. My colleagues have been incredible. Um, and I really feel that there's a lot that we can do with this format. But my personal belief is that there's no replacement to true relationship, true community. I'm really looking forward to when we can do that a little bit more in person, yeah. if, if and when, we'll see when that happens. Um, but I do think that it is about um, telling the undertold story. And I do feel that this podcast, all right now, what from the Canadian Women's Foundation does its best to try to get deeper into the hidden stories, the hidden communities, the hidden challenges, but then also the hidden solutions, the things we do not talk about in public spaces because there just isn't that space to hear things uh, that challenge the status quo. So I'm really pleased and, and feel quite privileged to be involved with that. Um, I, I feel lucky uh, to be a part of whatever um, that podcast ends up being every week. We kind of think, oh gosh, are we doing the right thing? Is this is this doing what we needed to want it to do? Uh, we're going to continue with it and see what it ends up being. But we're, I'm so thankful for the people who listen and, and how much um, good feedback we've gotten. Yeah. yeah, well, kudos to the team, Andrea. Um, I, I love that. I love the intro where you talk about yeah, we're going to talk about the subjects that you're kind of wondering why we're still talking about these things. And it's like, yeah. yes, why are we still talking about these things? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm yeah. sick of it. I'm really yeah. sick of it. I'm, I'm like, you know, people talk about being a bad feminist. I'm just a grumpy feminist. These days. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I hope it changes, but the grumpiness is huge. <laughs> well, the grumpiness is warranted. I think we should be making a lot more progress a lot faster than we are. So thank you for your contribution to that work and for teaching me so much. It's so nice to get to know you better. Oh, likewise. Thank you for having me. What a privilege. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. The next time I chat with Andrea, though, I am going to be sure to talk to her about how she is also a published author of fiction and nonfiction and holds a master's in criminology from the University of Toronto. In the meantime, let's all be sure to subscribe to the Canadian Women's Foundation podcast called All Right, Now What? You can find the link to that in our show notes. And remember, if you like, subscribe and share this podcast, even more people will be able to engage in conversation with us on these and other important topics. Thank you so much for making this conversation a priority in your busy day. See you next time.